0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. And today I'm speaking with Goktan Duangan, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Middle East Technical University in Northern Cyprus. We'll be talking about her 2019 book, Gender Politics in Turkey and Russia, From State Feminism to Authoritarian Rule. Dr. Gangan, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Hello, uh, Mrs. Tuhanova. I'm glad with your invitation actually. I'm glad that I mean i I am given this chance to uh, talk about my findings in the book yeah
0: i'm I'm very excited we could talk about this um because as I mentioned uh, when I sent you my email to invite you to the podcast, this is very close to my own area of research as well yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so to start us off, can you talk a little bit about your research background and sort of how you chose this topic and how the book came to be?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, my I mean, I, I have always an interest in gender equality, uh, but my, my first encounter with the issue of gender equality in Russia took place when I went to Russia as an Erasmus exchange student to learn Russian. And uh, I and I realized that over there, I realized that Russian and Turkish women have similar problems, like traditional division of labor, domestic violence, and discrimination in the labor market. Despite these countries having different cultural traditions and historical pasts, and despite Soviet Russia had a more liberal framework and compulsory employment policy. So at that time I also had an interest in uh, Russian modernization and so I just brought all these uh, issues together and I have decided to uh, make a comparison uh, between Russia and Turkey on the basis of the relationship between gender equality and politics. And uh, this experience in Russia uh, drew me actually to think comparatively about the situation in gender equality in Russia and Turkey. And uh, I started to think why in Soviet Russia state feminism did not change traditional family structure and gender roles. And then I went to USA to Michigan State University as a teaching associate. And uh, over there, there were very significant scholars whose fields of interest are gender in uh, Russia and Russian politics. And I had a chance to share my uh, observations and discuss with them. So uh, these... uh, Talks also uh, inspired me uh, to uh, take my research further, and uh, by the time actually when I was thinking about a comparative research uh, between Turkey and Russia, there were gradual signs of uh, authoritarianism and a patriarchal revival based on traditional values. So uh, there was a small literature uh, emerging that time, and uh, no one was quite sure uh, what is what what would be coming, uh, and the data pointing to the restoration or revival of the patriarchal gender order had not yet emerged then. Uh, however, I mean, I I have decided to uh, go further with my research, and it was my observation and intuition that intuition that gradually emerging authoritarianism would have serious effects on gender equality. Unfortunately, I was not wrong, and numerous data started to emerge while I was doing literature review, uh, collecting and analyzing and writing empirical. Data and even after finishing my research, uh, there were important developments regarding gender equality in Turkey. And uh, I also want to give uh, want to say a few words about my research actually. My research was founded on empirical data and his and secondary literature. Uh, I conducted expert inter- in-depth expert interviews with uh, academicians, uh, non-national and international for their academic production and engagement in feminist movements and pro-gender equality efforts. And also uh, I have conducted uh, interviews with the leading representatives of the long-term women NGOs and international organizations in Turkey and Russia. Also with feminist activists and public officers, uh, however, I should underline that I, I couldn't find a way to meet with the public officers in Russia or the presidents of political parties. Uh, I could not arrange any uh, appointment. I could not schedule an appointment with them. Uh, so, uh, with the uh, public officers, I only talked in Turkey. So, I mean, this is the background mm. of my research.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's not surprising that they they were resistant to talk in interviews, because I think especially on these topics, they're very uh kind of uh, worried about anyone who's considered out- outside of Russia exactly. writing about, about exactly. these things. So yeah. I've had these issues, too, trying to get interviews.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: so can you talk also a little bit about... Uh, what theoretical frameworks you yeah, use in the
1: sure. book? Yeah, uh, Actually, uh, my conceptual framework consists of the pair of gender order and gender climate, which are coined by R. R. W. Connell and Rebecca K. So, uh, this conceptual pair enabled me to elaborate on the women's equality uh, in Soviet Russia and Republican Turkey, and gender equality in contemporary Russia and Turkey, while taking into consideration state as an embeddedly autonomous organization. So, I mean, with this conceptual pair, I managed to make a comparison between uh, Russia and Turkey, a country comparison, but at the same time... I compared, I analyzed the historical trajectory in each case. I mean, how, for example, uh, you know, my main question is why uh, this state feminism uh, has turned into a state-promoted family and motherhood in uh, contemporary Russia and Turkey. So uh, this conceptual pair enables me to Follow this historical trajectory in both cases. Uh, so uh, what are these concepts? I mean, do you want me to elaborate on this conceptual framework a little bit? Um, yes, please. Yeah, OK. So uh, first of all, I should uh, underline that I, I take state as an embedded autonomous organization. But while taking state as a starting point, I do not attribute state an essence. So, on the contrary, this conceptual framework allowed me to consider the mutual interaction between state and society. So, according to Connell, gender order is a historically constructed pattern of power relations between men and women and definitions of femininity and masculinity. And Rebecca Kay contributes to her framework with the concept of gender climate. So, in... Case understanding, gender order refers to the underlying norms and patterns about gender relations, while gender climate corresponds to the prevailing norms and patterns that regulate gender relations in a specific time. So, gender climate is the way in which gender order is packaged and presented at a given time in a given society. And at the same time, gender climate functions as a hegemonic discourse and praxis because it affects the ways in which it is considered acceptable to speak about gender. As such, gender climate provides the conditions for hegemonic domination at the practical level because it manages social perceptions and attitudes about gender on the basis of generally accepted values. So these values are meaning to the majority of people, even though some of them may oppose or criticize the gender authority, gender ideology of the incumbent political authority. So, gender climate builds up hegemonic domination at the social perception, and this encourages the transformation of the gender order in the direction of more egalitarian gender relations, as we see uh, in the early 20th century in Soviet, Russia, and Republic of tur- Turkey, and or, or the gender order could be transformed towards the revival of the underlying gender order, which is identified as vital for national power and survival. So. Uh, in this framework, the state is constructive to this process and determines the interaction between gender order and gender climate, and manipulates the gender order in tandem with its socio-political and economic concerns and interests. So, from this conceptual framework, when the state and Soviet Repo- when the Soviet and Republican state had a modernization agenda, it led to already changing gender climate towards women's equality uh, on the basis of state feminism. But then, in the 21st century, when the Russian and Turkish states have started to underline the national authenticity and culture against the moral authority of the West, against the implications of globalization and in line with neoliberal economic policies, then these states has seen an interest in the underlying gender order in order to redefine national identity around a right-wing populist discourse. So uh, the interaction between gender order and gender climate shows us that gender dynamics play a constructive role in the political process political actors benefit from cultural meanings and symbols deriving from society-wide notions of femininity and masculinity. And these tools help the authorities establish strong ties and cultural resonance with the populace and secure their political support and legitimacy for their performance. So this conceptual framework also allows me to consider the implications of Soviet and Republican discourse and policies over the perceptions and practices of women, which have manifested in the feminist movement and women's struggle towards gender equality. Because, I mean, this state, I mean, both states uh, have an orientation uh, towards state-promoted motherhood and family. But uh, there is a growing resistance against these family-oriented policies of the states, because uh, so gender order is also dynamic. It is not uh, as same as the early twentieth century, for example. So, because the Russian and Soviet and uh, Turkish women benef- have benefited from the uh, state-led policies of women's equality. So I mean that is why this conceptual uh, pair also enabled me to consider the implications of Soviet and republican policies over the perceptions and practices of women and uh, over the uh, orientation uh, towards feminism uh, on the ground.
0: Um, so, to develop a little bit more this idea of, of state feminism,, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the concrete ways that women experienced greater freedom and autonomy at the start of these policies, and both in Soviet Russia and in Republican Turkey? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, uh, what kind of policies uh, what kind of policies were conducted, how legal framework was changed? Uh, these are very important to understand the. Uh, to understand the implications of state-led women's equality or state feminism in Soviet Russia and uh, Republican Turkey. Uh, first of all, uh, let me talk about uh, talk about the legal framework, actually. So, one of the first efforts of the, I mean, after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, actually, uh, the uh, revolution is one of the first efforts of the revolutionaries was to change the Civil Code and Penal Code, and which were inherited from the Russian Empire. And uh, according to the new uh, Civil Code, for example, marriage was defined as a civil rather than a religious union. And in marriage, both sexes were entitled equal rights in the choice of residence, alimony, child maintenance, and women were allowed to use their maiden surnames, for example. Similarly, women were entitled uh, equal rights in divorce and inheritance, which, uh, which were um, limited uh, by the uh, previous civil court, actually. And uh, in addition to this, the New States discourse uh, was based on the worker mothers and women's economic independence and their employment was strongly supported by the Soviet state, so the Soviet state embraced the role of supporting uh, working women's economic independence by providing public childcare and uh, public cafeterias or public laundries, for example. However, I mean, I should mention at this point that uh, when the state, uh, when the Soviet state, Uh, had uh, economic problems the uh, first cuts uh, happened uh, in this field, in the public infrastructure actually and the uh, burden of domestic work was uh, put on the shoulders of women uh, by limiting the uh, capacity of public, not childcare but public cafeterias and public laundries for example and uh, Another uh, concrete efforts uh, were observed in the labor code and uh, the equal pay for equal work principle and the obligation to work regardless of gender were adopted as the main principles. And uh, the, uh, as I mentioned, the Soviet state assumed public responsibility for childcare and domestic course by setting up public cafeterias, laundries, and child care uh, centers. Uh, there were also some special articles for women on the basis of their role of motherhood because the Soviet state has a concern to protect the productive uh, productive uh, Productive, ab- uh, productive abilities of women as well I mean, <clears throat> to protect their health and for example an exemption from uh, f- an exemption from uh, night shifts or overtime work or dangerous jobs uh, for working women uh, at the point of childbirth or uh, extended mater- maternal leave or maternity benefits for example these are uh, these were the concrete policies that the Soviet state followed, and also women uh, were provided with a wide range of educational and occupational options. They were encouraged to acquire new skills, values, orientations, and aspirations in addition to the uh, to the uh, to their traditional roles. Actually, and also they were endowed with uh, political rights as early as 1918. Uh, including the right to vote and to be a deputy of the Soviets. So uh, we observe similar uh, efforts in the Republican Revolution too. Uh, One of the first efforts of Republican revolutionaries was also uh, replace the uh, Islamic law, which is called Sharia, with a secular civil code. And uh, because before the revolution, actually, the uh, women were promised with the abolition of polygamy and equal rights of inheritance, divorce and custody. And these, uh, the rights in the family, the unequal uh, situation of women in the family and their lack of rights, actually, uh, in the family, uh, was a concern uh, of the Ottoman women's movement, actually, since the 19th century. So the Republican revolutionists promised women to abolish uh, uh, this unequal situation uh, within the family life, actually. So uh, with this new secular civil code, uh, public segregation of women, polygamy, arranged marriages, and repudiation were uh, abolished. And women were given the equal rights of inheritance, divorce and custody. And the code established equality between the sexes before the law and identified women as equal citizens with men. Similarly, in the labor code, the equal rights of workers regardless of gender uh, were guaranteed. However, uh, there there were also certain restrictions on women's employment in order to protect their reproductive function and the family units. Uh, and as a result of these uh, civil rights, the uh, women became more visible in the public sphere education and professional employment, and political rights uh, were endowed on women uh, later than Soviet Russia in 1930 and 1935. Uh, uh, respectively, they were given the suffrage and participated in local and national elections as political candidates. However, there is an important difference between uh, the legal efforts in Soviet Russia and Republican Turkey because uh, the main uh, source of women's oppression in Russia was taken as capitalism, the capitalist relations and the oppression of women or subordination of women. Uh, were the main problems and were considered as the main sources, sources of women's oppression and women's inequality. But in Turkey, it was religion actually. So uh, that is why uh, there was a more uh, secular orient. I mean, in both countries, actually, the new codes uh, were more secular, but. Uh, In Turkey, there was a kind of much complicated situation because there was an orientation towards secularism. But at the same time, the uh, women's morality, especially in the public sphere, uh, was an important concern for the Turkish revolutionaries. So uh, that is why, I mean, and the family was, women's employment, for example, was not put uh, as a priority against the family life or they did they were not put uh, on the same level for example in the civil court uh, there was a, I uh, I mean the women's employment and uh, equal rights uh, for employment were recognized but women's parties women's work outside house uh, outside home was uh, conditioned on the permission of uh, their fathers or their husbands. So, when we make a comparison between the Soviet and Republican uh, law, we see that the Soviet law was much more liberal than the Republican law. So, uh, these are the actually uh, concrete uh, benefits and concrete conditions to uh, women's emancipation and autonomy, but Uh, As I say, there were also certain limitations uh, on women's equality.
0: Mm -hmm. And could you say a little bit more about the autonomous women's movement, its emergence, um, and particularly kind of its recent history uh, vis-à-vis state policy?
1: Yeah, Uh, actually, uh, these—I mean—women's movement uh, had a background, had a uh, had a past during the. empire times in the russian empire and the ottoman empire and so uh, f- actually in soviet russia the uh, women's uh, movement uh, gained importance in the during the february revolution actually and uh, in this in the february revolution women uh, resisted to the war and uh, they were just uh, they were uh, screaming in the streets for uh for decent work for decent working conditions and for bread actually, so at this point the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik leaders on the one hand realized that uh, there is a there is a there was a very disturbed population and this is half of the population, actually, there was a very disturbed group uh, with the uh, conditions in the Russian Empire. And uh, for uh, for for numerical reasons, actually, there was a need to mobilize and organize uh, these uh, women uh, for revolutionary cause. And uh, as a result of this, actually, the Bolsheviks uh, integrated women's question uh, as a part of their revolutionary agenda and then uh, for example they started to publish an, uh, a journal called Rabotnitsa which means uh, working woman uh, in Russian and also they established an office uh, for uh, a, an office for women's uh, mobilization and women's organization and then uh, after the revolution, uh, the uh, revolutionaries also, uh, in order to sustain the women's support uh, for the revolution and to make them benefit from the new legal uh, framework, new legal rights, uh, in a better way, in a concrete way, uh, they also uh, encourage the establishment of specific specific women's organization, which is called genotech. However, uh, this specific uh, Bureau for Women's Rights started to make feminist claims in time. And uh, they they demanded much more uh, from the regime uh, for for improving the employment conditions of women or for providing them uh, with uh, much more material benefits, for example. So then uh, the revolutionaries just uh, got disturbed with this feminist voice actually, the feminist direction and they started to so- see this as a deviation because the revolutionaries were trying to abolish the class uh, as a uh, as a phenomenon that divides society and now the gender, constituted a risk uh, for the revolution that makes that would make or that could make the population uh, to be aligned uh, along their gender. So uh, they they were disturbed with the possibility of uh, dividing the population along uh, their gender, actually. And then uh, in, in, in the 1930 uh, or 31, the genital was closed. Uh, because uh, it was claimed that the women's question was solved and women's equality was uh, achieved, we observe a similar trend in in, in Turkey too. Actually, and the, uh, I mean after the revolution, uh, the uh, women's <coughs> who were the representatives of the. Uh, Ottoman Women's Movement and uh, who supported the Republican Revolution uh, for uh, secularism and nationalism, actually. At first, they intended to establish a political party. However, the authorities refused uh, this uh, interest, refused this idea, and then uh, they were convinced for establishing a union which is called Turkish Women's Union. And uh, the expectation was uh, was the support for the new nation state and for secular order. Actually, the, when we look at the activities and discourse of the Turkish Women's Union, uh, we do not see any challenge to the national and secular order. But uh, there were some demands, there were some feminist demands and there was a kind of, I mean, feminist critique of the New regime, and again, the newly established Republican state could not tolerate uh, this feminist uh, voice and uh, close, not close, but mm-hmm. made the uh, made the union uh, made the union liquidate itself uh, after the uh, political rights of the women uh, were entitled. So I mean, again, the reason was the resolution of women's equality or women's question and there was no need for a specific organization that represents the women's rights because there is no uh, problem or there is no more inequality between men and women. Mm
0: Uh, now you talk in the book about how, in in the years leading up to the respective ascent of Putin and Russia and Erdogan and Turkey, there are certain shifts happening in sort of the way that the, the, in the policies and ideology of state feminism and then a discourse around them, right? Um, so what are those shifts, and how was this return to a more traditional family structure framed?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, uh, I should I should say that. This shift uh, has not started with Erdogan and uh, Putin. Actually, from the very beginning, the revolutionary change in Soviet Russia and early Republican Turkey did not bring about a total rupture. I mean, the uh, state-led women's equality uh, represented a reintegration of pre-revolutionary traditions with communist and secular nationalist premises in respectively in Soviet Russia and Republican Turkey. And from the very beginning, there were reactions. And these, I mean, the women's-led equality or, I mean, sorry, state-led equality or state feminism uh, was a part of modernization projects uh, in Soviet Russia and Turkey. And so from the very beginning in the political debates regarding the direction of modernization or westernization, uh, there, it was a very. I mean, there were uh, very uh, controversial debates, uh, and the uh, debates uh, were revolved. The, the, these debates, these political debates, were revolving. Uh, particularly revolving on the role of women, on the rights of women. Because, I mean, uh, as as a part of modernization, there were some efforts needed to emancipate women, but at the same time, the revolutionaries or the reactionary uh, the reactionary groups against these revolutions were also concerned about the implications of revolution and implications of women's equality or women's emancipation on the society, on the moral uh, morality, on public morality and uh, social life, for example. So, uh, so that is why I mean, before the revolutions in both cases, the women's emancipation was a Uh, controversial topic what should be it is limits what should be it is limits or what should be it is orientation for example so especially in Turkey uh, there was always uh, counter-attacks against modernization however I mean in both Soviet Russia and Republican Turkey because the governing elite uh, was so committed to communist and secular premises and this revolutionary elite was highly organized at the decision-making level, then these counter-attacks or critics uh, are somehow contained, were contained for long decades, actually. However, uh, in Soviet Russia, for example, it was again the state who, uh, which brought up this issue again in the 70s and uh, because of the declining birth rates and because of increasing divorces or uh, single uh, mother families, for example, or increasing rates of alcoholism, uh, increasing rates of UNL uh, delinquency, for example, as a result of these problems, then the state, gender Soviet state, generated an interest in women's question again. And at this point, for the first time, it was admitted that the women's question was not resolved. Uh, there was an There were unequal relations between men and women, and women are women were in uh, subordinate position at in the family, at home, uh, in popular decision making uh, mechanisms, and in uh, labor market as well. However, I mean, the state did not adopt a feminist. Uh, uh, feminist viewpoint rather uh, there was a tendency emerging uh, that um, blamed the soviet policies for over emancipating women and for increasing the burden of women and double burden of women of russian soviet women actually became a question and in the after this in the times in the period of perestroika for example as a result of the increasing rates of unemployment, for example, uh, because of the uh, transition—not uh, not a not complete transition, but a kind of modification in the uh, economic uh, system—then uh, you know, Gorbachev uh, made the fan, made his famous announcement, and he called uh, women uh, he called women back at home. And after Perestroika uh, and uh, after to transition to post-Soviet uh, politics, then there was a duality. Uh, I mean, the post the early post-Soviet state did not have a specific interest in women's question, but in the grassroots level or it's in the civil society, there was a duality against uh, gender equality. There were also feminist organizations and feminist base and feminist journals or feminist movement emerged, but there was a conservative reaction uh to this uh, feminist uh orientation. And uh because I mean the women's the female population was really overburdened and they were so tired and uh As a result of the authoritarian policy, authoritarian Soviet policies actually, they were in need of uh, cared by men, actually, which was highly rejected in the Western feminism, for example. Similarly, in Turkey, and then, uh, for the first time in the post-Soviet period, for the first time, Putin raised this issue in two thousand six, with the introduction of maternity capital, and. Also, I should mention that there was a demographic crisis in Russia since the 1970s. So this also makes uh, the women's uh, equality as a concern for the state. And uh, Putin actually uh, brought this tradition and uh, he also, I mean, when he introduced maternity capital, he realized the importance of uh, demographic crisis as an alarming threat uh, for Russian state and society, but on the other hand, he also realized that, uh, unlike Gorbachev, for example, it is not possible to bring women back at home. Not only the culture, but also the economic realities would not uh, would not allow this happen. Uh, the uh, women, you know, I mean. Would leave the labor market and become housewives. So he tried to find a solution to the double burden of women. To the uh, and he tried to revive the Soviet notion of uh, worker mothers. Uh, worker mothers, but he did this not from a feminist perspective, but from a nationalist and conservative perspective and when the relations uh, with the west uh, got uh, worse actually and uh, when the uh, uh, there were reactions against putin's rising authoritarianism uh, in russia then uh, putin uh, made a conservative turn uh, at the beginning of his third term actually and then his policies uh, on gender equality uh, have become much more concrete, and uh, he introduced new incentives, for example, in addition to, not incentives actually, certain limitations. Uh, for example, the abortion regime was changed, and the domestic violence uh, is not recognized, I and mean, there were some attempts to criminalize domestic violence, but because of the uh, because of the uh, Orthodox Church or Orthodox groups, uh, for example, because of the reaction, domestic violence was uh, decriminalized, for example. So uh, within this context, actually, there was a, there was a transition towards more uh, patriarchal and uh, conservative uh, gender uh, ideology. In Turkey, similarly, I mean, before talking about how uh, this uh, new patriarchy supports their uh, political regime, I just want to talk a little about the situation in Turkey. In Turkey, similarly, there was a duality uh, regarding women's equality and the reaction, and there was a conservative reaction uh, from the very beginning, but uh, they were just, uh, these reactions were contained. And however, uh, I should mention that uh, in the early eighties, uh, there was a feminist movement emerging in Turkey, and this fem- this feminist movement uh, this feminist movement just criticized the Republican policies uh, of women's equality uh, for not removing patriarchal relations or for not resolving patriarchal relations. So they claimed that these uh, feminist mo- women Claimed that the uh, religious patriarchy was just uh, replaced with a secular patriarchy. And we, in, in the 1980s, in Turkey, uh, we uh, experienced a very disastrous military intervention in the 1980s. And then uh, in 1983, Uh, Turkey experienced a transition to democratic polities. And it's a question uh, how in this authoritarian period feminist movement was allowed to flourish. The point is that uh, because of the need for seeking uh, seeking out international prestige and international support, the military, the post military period, was a period of transition to democracy and to civilian politics. So civil society uh, was encouraged and NGOs were, NGOs were mushrooming and environmental movement, for example, anti nuclear protests and feminist movement were allowed to to flourish in this period, and uh, Turkey also became a part of the international organizations, uh, the UN declarations, for example, the CEDAW, uh, for example. So this also created an interest at the state level too. Uh, however, uh, and in addition to this, the feminist movement was not taken as a threat uh, to the regime as well. I mean, so the state. Uh, on the one hand, underestimated the importance of feminist movement, and on the other hand, the conservative uh, group in the governments also tried to contain the feminist efforts at the state level. So, for example, the uh, uh, General Directorate of of Women's States and Problems uh, was established, but before that, A council for family was established in order to uh, counter the feminist efforts for example so at the state level there was a duality and in the ground in the civil society there was a duality too because political Islam was rising and the uh, pro-Islamist political parties uh, started to uh, achieve power at in local and national elections and Uh, the pro-Islamist parties also involved uh, religious or conservative women within their uh, struggle, into their struggle, because uh, there was a very secular uh, policy against the veiled women. Uh, Veiled women were not allowed to enter university or other educational institutions and public offices uh, with their veils. So... So many women, many religious women or veiled women were excluded uh, from the from education and from employment in public offices or they were forced to remove their veils, for example. So pro-Islamist parties also, uh, pro-Islamist parties involved uh, these women and... Uh, uh, Took, I mean, uh, earned their support on the basis of their exclusion from the system, on the basis of the violation of their religious rights, for example. So uh, there was a, yeah, uh, there was a duality. So as a result of this, an Islamist movement, women's movement emerged. I should admit, we should admit that there was an Islamist there were islamist feminists too but in time uh, the uh, islamist women's uh, movement uh, was only uh, became only focusing on uh, women's uh, headscarves for example so the voice of the islamist feminists uh, uh, started to uh, become weaker uh, in time for example and under the uh, leadership of Erdogan they were uh, totally Excluded from the system, so this is the background of the pre Erdogan and pre Putin periods regarding gender equality in Russia and Turkey. So, uh, so they did not. Do, I mean, neither Erdogan nor Putin uh, made something from secret. Secret actually. So there was a tendency in the civil society and at state level toward feminism and conservatism also. So there was a kind of Uh, competition between feminism and conservatism so why these two leaders uh, did not uh, adopt a feminist uh, perspective or feminist orientation and on the contrary uh, they supported conservatism because they uh, saw a political interest in the uh, underlying patriarchal order in order to uh, in order to uh, support uh, their populist and authoritarian regimes, actually, uh, these uh, Putin and Erdogan actually uh, so, um, so Putin and Erdogan uh, use gender politics or traditional gender identities and roles as a way as a tool of connection and resonance with the society. So I mean by doing this. Uh, by doing this, actually, uh, they make uh, they establish very close links uh, with the society, and they put themselves as the real and moral leader of uh, leader of their uh, society. Because it has some reasons. Because I mean, in Russia there was a reaction against the West, and this has a background uh, background in the nineteen nineties, in transition period in Russia. So uh, many of the Russians uh, feel themselves uh, as subordinated against the West, as dominated by the West, for example, and uh, there was a reaction against the unipolarity at the geopolitical level or uh, economic power of the Western countries, and at the same time to the moral authority of the Western countries. they were under threat their national culture their national authenticity were under the threat of the uh, threat of the western powers and at the same time globalization in turkey uh, the uh, discourse of erdogan is based on that the uh, traditions and values of real people uh, were uh, disregarded by the secular and westernized elites and the genuine people were excluded from the system, were marginalized and they were not respected. So uh, it is time uh, to put uh, these traditional uh, values and norms to the front again. And so based on these discourses actually, these both leaders established themselves as the real and moral representatives of the nation and protectors of the national authenticity and their values against both foreign and domestic threats. So, uh, and traditional values, family and women are the primary values that represent and carry these uh, shared values by the larger uh, groups in Russian and Turkish society. And so, uh, they just uh, constitute the Borders of the national identity and underline these values, I mean the traditional values, family and traditional role of women, are used uh, as the markers of the national identity to distinguish the national authenticity and superiority of the Russian and Turkish cultures against the Western values represented by the Western countries or represented by the secular and westernized elites in Turkey. So this is my analysis uh, on the revival of patriarchy uh, in relation to the uh, rising authoritarianism.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, something that's really interesting that I've lo- looked at a lot in my own work is that you know, Russia, I mean, I don't know if this is similar in Turkey, but in Russia, there's obviously this, as you said, this idea that Russia is uh, protecting traditional values, not just in Russia, but it's sort of this global leader exactly. of protecting traditional values mm-hmm. against the and particularly the United States, and yet uh, Russian conservative organizations are working with a lot of American Protestant organizations, and particularly in sort of the anti-abortion laws, just as an example, they're using a lot of the same legal frameworks and discourse that the American anti-abortion movement uses. Exactly. Uh, so it's a very kind of ironic situation right now.
1: Yes, I mean, in, in um, Russia, uh, I should mention that this... Uh, anti-gender orientation has a geopolitical background too. I mean, in comparison to Turkey, for example. In Turkey, it is much more a domestic issue. But in Russia, it is much more a geopolitical issue because Russia challenged, challenged, challenged the, challenges the unipolarity uh, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which was established as the new global order after the Soviet dissolution of the Soviet Union. So there is a kind of challenge against the Western... Uh, Domination in economic, geopolitical, and cultural terms. So Russia, especially with the rise of the uh, gender equality or with the recognition of the LGBTQI rights, for example, in Europe, uh, Russia says that or claims that at least Putin claims that the Orthodoxy, especially Orthodoxy, is corrupting in the West. And we are the—I mean, Russia is the real representative of the Orthodox tradition, actually. And also Orthodox uh, Church is uh, supported because it is another tool to uh, impose control not only in Russia but also in the post-Soviet space, especially in Ukraine in order to unite, for example, the uh, efforts to unite uh, Russian and uh, Ukrainian people under uh, under the common identity of Orthodoxy, for example. So, I mean... I mean it's not I and mean, gender is not a very is not a one dimensional or secondary or simple issue actually it is it is very uh, complicated and it has a political cultural social and economic and geopolitical dimension so uh, yeah <laughs> it's like that
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. So there's one kind of more specific question I want to ask, and then we'll wrap up. But uh, you talk about in your analysis of contemporary Russian law, you talk about that there's a difference between gender neutrality uh, and gender sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, And I think this is kind of instructive. Not. The Russian and Turkish context, but for the West as well. So, what do those terms mean, and how is gender neutrality kind of insufficient to address some of these the discrimination that's happening under authoritarian regimes?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, gender neutrality is a is a basic excuse that the Russian Russian authorities use uh, in order to not make a law on domestic violence, because uh, they argue that in our constitution and in russian constitution and in other uh, specific codes like civil code penal code or labor labor code uh, there is no discrimination against gender the, they say that the language of law is uh, gender neutral so all articles are made uh, on the basis of the women's equality between men and women this is what they say however uh, every social phenomenon is gendered i mean if i mean you you can put an article in the labor law that you can say that there can be no discrimination uh, against any individual on the basis of their sex yes this is an important article but this doesn't uh, recognize the discrimination that women experience in the labor market uh, because of their sex So gender neutrality is based on abstract understanding of social phenomena, and this hides gender bias, rules, norms, and values. Every social phenomenon is gendered, economy, politics, space, citizenship, and law is gendered. And we see this in the Soviet legal framework, for example. So the legal equality was ensured, uh, was recognized, but the legal equality did not ensure the de facto women's equality. So, for example, in the Soviet law, uh, the definition of family reflected certain inequalities and differences between men and women. In the contemporary Russian law, for example, the definition of family reflects certain equalities and differences between men and women and assigns women and men specific roles and identities. So, I mean, it is not convincing to say that uh, our, the Russian law is gender neutral, because it is not. But as I said, this is an excuse to uh, not convince, but to, uh, to, say, to claim that uh, to, not to make a law on domestic violence or not to uh, protect women uh, in the labor market effectively. So, gender, uh, in my understanding, actually, gender neutrality refers to lack of specific rules and norms that ensure the equalization of men's and women's opportunities and the realization of their rights and freedoms. So, there is a need for gender-sensitive rules and even positive discrimination by the state for the enforcement of specific rules and measures to enable women to realize their rights in an equal way because legal equality is not sufficient there should be some extra efforts to make a uh, women realize their rights or to make them both women and men to benefit from the rights and freedoms in an equal way or to benefit from the opportunities in an equal way so gender neutrality reflects a kind of Lack of awareness and is a kind of excuse for not issuing gender-specific laws against gender discrimination, and this has the effect of not recognizing specific forms of gender discrimination and then not protecting women. So, as I said, these uh, these terms, uh, the, the the term of gender neutrality came up with terms of the lack of law on domestic violence because the women's movement in Russia has been struggling for the enactment of law on domestic violence for more than 20 years there have been uh, attempts for more than 4 times but 40 times but none of them succeeded and uh, when the state denied the enactment, enactment of a specific law for mainstreaming gender equality its main excuse is that Russia has an extensive and advanced legal framework, which is based on equality between sexes, and there is no need for a specific law on domestic violence, for example. And uh, in the struggle with the domestic violence, the Russian state claims that there is penal code to criminalize domestic violence and punish the perpetrators. But when we look at practice, we see that the law enforcement bodies uh, could not even find which article of the code applies to the case in question. Or, for example, the authorities claim that uh, there is no, uh, I mean, the law is gen- gender neutral, but we see that, okay, we s- there is an article uh, which uh, prohibits sex based discrimination in em- employment, but uh, there is no parental leave, for example. There is maternal leave. So, this reflects an assumption about gender roles and identities. So, this is not convincing. So, uh, this proves that the laws, I mean, these articles prove that the law is gendered, but when the state says that the law is ne- gender neutral, it says that the state does not assume any responsibility to protect women uh, against any violations that derive from the uh, in gendered inequalities at home in politics or in labor market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
0: i think mm-hmm. i think that makes sense i think that goes really a long way towards explaining um you know for people outside of russia why this domestic violence issue continues to mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> not be resolved and is actually kind of going backwards yeah
1: yes i mean, it, actually it is treated uh, as a so, part of traditional uh, russian family you know uh i mean right, some yeah. uh small uh small i mean not small but I, I how can I say not dangerous, but not, uh, yeah, not dangerous case of physical violence is not treated as a case of uh, domestic violence, sexual, for example, the small bruises or some claps. They are taken as a part of the relationship between the parents and the children or between the spouses, for example. So, I mean, none of them, mm-hmm. uh, not women or not only women, but also children are not taken as individuals. So, uh, men, as fathers and uh, as fathers and husbands, uh, are given a right to control and even punish their children and their wives uh, in case of a disagreement or in case of a conflict within the family, for example. And this is justified by uh, referring to the traditional. Uh, feminist structure and this is uh, the traditional feminist structure actually makes Russia very unique and different from the western countries
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, so as we wrap up what would you what do you hope will be the key takeaways of your book for readers and listeners
1: so um, what can be the main takeaways so I, I can say that um uh, there is a feminist motto, you know, I mean, private is political, but I say that political is private, political is private too. So politics is not that much far away and uh, it influences our experiences by gender like class. So gender is not an issue of secondary importance. And in this book, I try to discuss how gender is constructive to politics in social, economic, political, cultural and geopolitical terms. A second important takeaway could be the gender dimension of authoritarian politics, which is usually overlooked, actually. And uh, I hope the readers, uh, I mean, I hope the readers uh, would enjoy, not enjoy, of course, but would realize how the revival of patriarchy is integral to authoritarian politics and vice versa. Uh, Because, uh, I mean, By realizing uh, this uh, phenomenon, also uh, as individuals or as the beneficiaries, we can also observe and uh, give meaning to the implications of the combination of patriarchy and authoritarianism on our daily lives, on our experiences at home, in labor market, and at school, or even in the street, for example. So... uh, I think the relationship between authoritarianism and gender, under understanding the relationship between authoritarianism uh, and gender, is very important for us to realize uh, what is happening in our private lives, what is happening uh, when uh, when we are walking in the street or when we are working in a uh, in a place, for example, because you know, I mean. Especially in Turkey, the uh, female murders uh, is, a, is a very alarming social issue. And women uh, are not secure and safe in the streets anymore, especially in night times, for example. Or, I mean, many women who are trying to uh, get divorced from their husbands or uh, get separated from their boyfriends, for example, they are under threat. Uh, and uh, the case. I mean, we are we every day hear a case of female murder. So I mean, we should. I mean, in order to keep ourselves safe and secure, for example, so we should first understand the relationship between politics and gender, and then we should react this at react this at more general level. And another important. Uh, takeaway for, of my book is that the comparison, the importance of comparison. Actually, uh, I mean, it is not only in Russia and Turkey, but across the globe, there is a tendency towards the revival of patriarchy. So, in in even in the EU countries, for example, in Poland, in Hungary, we we see that uh, there is a a tendency towards uh, reviving the traditional uh, patriarchal relations or limiting and restricting abortion rights, for example, or uh, marginalizing or excluding the LGBTI individuals, for example. So uh, that is why the comparative work between different cases such as Russia and Turkey helps us find out the reasons beyond the national borders. And uh, as a result of these, I mean, thanks to this kind of comparisons, we can realize that, I mean, how, I mean, in the early 20th century, for example, it was a century for women's equality or uh, at least liberal feminism. But in the 21st century, it is a time uh, for authoritarianism Populism and uh, revival of patriarchy. So uh, these are the main takeaways that can that I can offer for the further readers.
0: Thank you, and I, th- I think that's extremely timely and important. And I really wish every everybody would would have some awareness of this. Um, I hope. And to. finally, uh, I like to ask. Guests, <laughs> uh, finally, I like to ask guests, what are you working on currently?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm still working on authoritarianism in Russia and Turkey from a gender perspective. So uh, now uh, I am working on the political masculinity and its implications on the er- erosion of strong and durable institutions. Uh, because uh, the performance of masculinity by political leaders provides symbolic cover and establishes a paternalistic relation- relationship with the people. So, power is so much personalized uh, with Putin and Erdogan, and they present themselves as the patriarch of the nation. And this, uh, I mean, this provides them with certain benefits like increasing vote rates or increasing support. But now we see that these uh, both countries are in a kind of economic and political crisis and the popularity and support of not only the leaders but also their uh, affiliated political parties are also decreasing and there are many cases of corruption for example there is a lack of meritocracy and these all po- these developments all point out to the erosion of institutions actually so especially i mean not only in turkey and russia but across the globe we realize the importance of the strong institutions for the consolidation or protection of democracy, actually, in addition to political culture. So uh, at this point, uh, I mean, at this point in my uh, academic life, I want to focus on the implications of political masculinity uh, over the weakening institutions and... Uh, so I just want to contribute uh, contribute to the uh, operation of authoritarian politics uh, from a gender perspective.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Goktan Duangan of Middle East Technical University about her 2019 book, Gender Politics in Turkey and Russia, From State Feminism to Authoritarian Rule, which is available from IB Taurus Press. Thank you for listening. And Dr. Doangan thank you again for joining me today.
1: And thank you uh, for your invitation. It, it's a great pleasure for me to have this uh, very nice talk. Thank you very much.